Peter Stone. I'm Peter. And I'm Felice. Welcome to our travel podcast. We're specialist travel writers and we've spent half a lifetime exploring every corner of the world. So we want to share with you some of our extraordinary experiences and the amazing people we've met along the way. This week we're at Bletchley Park, the country mansion 35 minutes by train northwest of London, where Alan Turing and his team of crypto-analysts cracked the complicated codes of the German Enigma machine. They were helped by the forerunner of the earliest computer that they built here to speed up the process from weeks to just hours. Their work heavily influenced the outcome of World War II and possibly helped to bring about Allied Victory, the Oscar-winning 2014 movie The Imitation Game, starring Benedict Cumberbatch, tells some of the story of what happened here back in the 1940s, but by no means the whole picture. Failure to discover the existence of Bletchley Park and what went on here between 1939 and 1945 proved to be the greatest error of the entire Nazi war machine. This was the intelligence-gathering nerve centre of the Allies, and it operated on a grandiose scale. By the end of the war, some 9,000 people worked here in top secrecy in a series of huts built in the 50-acre grounds of the mansion. Their job was to supply Turing and the codebreakers with encrypted radio messages hacked from German and Japanese and Italian radio communications all over the world. The Intelligence Factory is the name of a fascinating hands-on exhibition that's recently opened here at Bletchley Park. We met up with Chief Organiser Perenel Craddock to tell us all about it. I should just point out that the interactive displays and Turing's electromechanical machines are quite noisy. The Intelligence Factory is the largest permanent exhibition to open at Bletchley Park, and it's a really important story for us. It tells this, uh, quite a hidden history that was actually really, really important to the impact that the site's work had on World War II. Um, Bletchley Park is obviously known for code breaking. It was the home of the code breakers in World War II. But what is less known is its function as an intelligence organisation. And in fact, GCHQ today is the organisation that was at Bletchley Park in World War II. So there's a really long history of intelligence generation. And that was the key point behind what we wanted to get across in the exhibition. We're going back to a world where there was no computers. That's the essential difference between now and GHQ today, isn't it? That's quite right. Everything today is, of course, digital and enormously quicker than it would have been in World War II. And so the co-breakers had a huge challenge on their hands. The importance of the intelligence coming out of Bletchley Park had really proved its worth in World War II. But where we picked the story up in 1942, there was a huge demand for this. And that meant that the whole site and the, the work that happened here had to scale up very, very quickly to meet that demand. There were mountains and mountains of intercepted messages coming in. Those had to be decrypted and they had to be indexed and analysed and turned into this incredibly concise, digested intelligence that was of proper strategic importance to Allied commanders and to commanders in the field. 9,000 people in Bletchley Park and its outstations working around the clock, so 24-7. There were three shifts at Bletchley Park on site eight hours each. And the whole process moved from a fairly cottage industry through to a proper factory of intelligence generation, where the work was broken up into lots of different stages, all carried out by different teams, working independently of each other, but in, as part of this enormous whole. Presumably the logistics involved of having 9,000 people, were they all civilians or half civilian? They were recruited from pretty much anywhere they could find in wartime. Um, we did have quite a lot of civilian staff working here that were recruited through the Foreign Office, but we also had many, many staff who were with the women's services and in the services in general. 
The listening was done elsewhere, presumably. The listening was done in the Y stations. Those are wireless intercept stations based around the UK and also globally. So their job was to listen in to wireless signals sent by the enemy and write down whatever they heard. Would have been transmitted in Morse. What came out of the Morse was encrypted. Everything here is decorated with the same colours. Yep, so this project was the most amazing opportunity to restore Block A, the first of eight brick blocks to be built on the site, to its wartime appearance. And so we worked really carefully with our conservation architects and we've done research into the building's history including paint sampling to be able to recreate exactly what the building would have looked like right down to the color schemes and the the, the type of lighting and blackout lines how it would have been in world war ii when the code breakers worked here tens of thousands of messages came in all the time and they were transmitted in morse to here where they were printed out, presumably, and then what happened? They would have come into the codebreakers as encrypted message material. So it would have looked just like gobbledygook, sets of five or four letters that made no sense at all to the reader. That was the raw material the codebreakers were working on. Their first job would have been to break the encryption and to read those messages. They didn't look at every single message that came in because the volume was enormous. So there was a constant communication with Allied Command about what was of most interest and importance. And they would then focus their activities on certain sets of messages or certain areas of the, the war. And those individual messages, each one of those contained a, a crucial piece of information, sometimes a very trivial piece of information but the kind of the scaling up of the work enables them to build an enormous index of all of these individual pieces of information it was actually being able to cross-reference and give context to each individual message that made the intelligence so useful so we had teams of intelligence analysts working with the index material understanding not just what they were seeing on that particular transmission but what that meant for the course of the war what that meant for the allied strategy and then sending out the intelligence digest that they produced from the information to other intelligence organizations, to Churchill, to Allied commanders, and straight out to the fields as well, where they could be put into operational use. And that had an impact on every sphere of the war across the globe. We weren't just focusing on German codes and ciphers, we were tra- focusing on Japanese and Italian and influencing the war in the Pacific, as well as the war in North Africa, the Mediterranean, and the war in Europe. The logistics of handling these 9,000 people are really quite remarkable. I mean, I I saw on one of the war charts, I can't remember how many meals per day, but I mean, quite extraordinary number. Just to get the people billeted, presumably, was difficult. I mean, 9,000 people in what was then very much countryside, hard to find places within easy distance, was it? It was an enormous undertaking, and pretty much everything was was brought to bear on trying to make sure that they had all the resources in place to support not just the work, but as you say, the life and the um, how to feed people, where they'd sleep, how they got to work, all of the logistics and operations that go into that. And we've got the most wonderful repository of, of memos down at the National Archives in London that, that really go into the minutiae of the daily life. And we've been able to reproduce quite a lot of them in the exhibition to give a glimpse into what it was like to feed people, to find enough accommodation, even down to where you'd source rubber tennis balls. There wasn't any accommodation here, was there? That's absolutely right. None of the co-breakers were accommodated at Bletchley park itself there simply wasn't space on the site so at the start of the war they were using local inns and hotels and private houses people would be billeted with local families later on when the site grew and grew purpose-built camps sprung up they took over large country houses like woburn and wavenden 
rehabilitated lots of people there. And they were being brought in by bus or coming in on bicycles or in private cars or many forms of transport, sometimes you know, after dark in the blackout, which must have been an adventure in itself. Well, I read here that 25,000 miles a week, that's the total mileage by the, the taxi service of bringing people to and from work. Yes, absolutely. And the people were the, the bread and butter of the organization. Every person was one of the little parts of the, the whole kind of factory process. Their work was needed to carry on. This must have been a potential target, though, for bombing. Well, the purpose of the site itself was entirely secret. Everyone who worked here had to abide by the Official Secrets Act and were not allowed to talk about it, even between themselves if somebody worked in a different part of the organisation. But while it would have been obvious to people around that there was something going on here, this type of military establishment was springing up all over the country as part of the war effort. So in a certain sense, it was nothing out of the ordinary to, to a kind of a casual observer. It's only when you know of the important work that happened here that it suddenly becomes much more important. So because that secret never got out, the site was never actively targeted. We did have, I think the site was bombed once, but it was an accidental, it was a bomber coming back from a raid, just jettisoning. Exactly. And it hit one of the huts here. But apart from that, no, it wasn't targeted. It's quite remarkable, really, a failure of our intelligence. I find it completely astonishing that somewhere that employs so many people and was here for such a long time all the way through the war doing such work could have been kept secret. I mean, in our present day, it seems almost inconceivable. But... It worked. The people here did keep very, very quiet about it. And in fact, some of them still do. When did Bletchley Park first open? So Bletchley Park was chosen as the wartime home of Government Code and Cipher School, who had been based in central London. And it was purchased just before the war broke out by Admiral Sinclair, who was head of uh, SIS at that point. Um, it had various advantages. It was very close to a, a, um, a massive communications hub. And of course, communications were key to the the work here, as well as good transport links and all the rest of it. Um, and so the co-breakers first moved up here in 1938 when it felt that war might be imminent and they had essentially a trial run. They came up and were running their operation from here for a few weeks. Things settled down and they went back to London. But then when we got to September 1939 and war was absolutely on the cusp of breaking out, they came up here the day before and they were up and running within a matter of hours, just carry on their work as usual, but away from the central London and its, uh, its targets. It was only a couple of hundred at the start. The organisation itself had been formed just after World War One, bringing together the signals intelligence units from all of the different forces and the Foreign Office and combining them into one. And they had been working on various problems. They'd been working on Enigma, for example, through the Spanish Civil War. So there was a lot of knowledge and expertise there, but only a few hundred people. For visitors today, apart from the exhibition, what other things should they go and see here? Because there's a lot, isn't there? There is a lot to see at Bletchley Park. We've got a, a beautiful site. With lovely grounds, so we recommend people come and spend a day with us. We tell the chronological story of the co-breaking on site between 1939 or 1938-39 and 1946, when the organisation left this site, and we tell it in the place where it happened. So you can visit the mansion, which was the first place that the co-breakers set up their offices, find out about those very early days, and then explore as the as the site grows, as the story gets bigger, through the co-breaking huts, and then into the blocks where we have the intelligence factory, and then we have other exhibitions that give a glimpse into the context and the impact and the relevance of their work today. So for example, we have a temporary exhibition on the art of data, which talks about how we visualise data today and the techniques we use to to manage and interpret masses of data, which is so much parallel to what was being done at Bletchley 
part, particularly in places like the Naval Plotting Room, which we've managed to recreate in the Intelligence Factory. And we also have a large exhibition on D-Day that really brings home the impact of Bletchley Park's intelligence on the success of the D-Day campaign. That's a massive immersive film. It takes you out of the site and into the war. And of course, we have a lot here on Alan Turing, who is a very famous name among our Bletchley Park breakers and his and, and the team behind the bomb machines that were developed to help break the Enigma codes much more efficiently and quick, more quickly than they've been able to do by hand. When people arrive, is there a map they can look at so that they can find their way around? Yeah, we have a map available. In fact, before your visit, our website has a lot of information about what there is to see, so you can pick and choose. We have maps available to everyone at reception. We also have multimedia guides, which are included in our entry price, that take you around the site. Um, We have an amazing team of volunteers who run tours that you can just drop into. Again, that's part included in the entry price. And that's a fantastic overview for anyone who hasn't been before. It takes you through the main story of the site. It takes you around the key buildings. And it's a really great starting point to then explore a bit more deeply yourself. Well, I think we'd like to come back here in a minute, but can we go and take a look at the Enigma, first of all? Uh, certainly. So give us a quick summary of Enigma and what Enigma is to people who don't know. So Enigma is a mechanical enciphering machine. It's an electromechanical enciphering machine, I should say. And it works by essentially scrambling the letters of a message using a system that was considered initially to be pretty much unbreakable. So The Enigma machine itself has a a keypad on it that looks a little bit like an old-fashioned typewriter. Behind that is another sort of set of alphabet uh, light-up, kind of letters that light up, called the lamp board. So when you're typing your message in, you type it in in plain text. Every time you type a letter, a, a letter will light up on the lamp board which will be your encrypted letters. So you might type in P and it might come out as Z and so on. And the Enigma encryption works on a very sophisticated system, a key that is a combination of settings, preset settings from a sheet that they can just read off. And then another part of the setting that they come up with themselves and add into the encryption. So they would adjust the machine's settings before they start to meet that day's key. And the person at the other end would set their machine up in exactly the same way. And then if they typed in the encrypted message, they would get the plain text out of it. So the machine did the encryption. The messages would be sent by wireless transmission using Morse code. They'd be written down the other end, plugged back into an Enigma machine, and, and there you go. And so what the listening stations, the Y service, were doing was intercepting the radio transmissions of those messages. So they could hear those Morse letters being sent across the airwaves. They would be writing them down. So as that message was getting to its, its uh, intended recipient, it would also be written down by the, by the British and sent back to Bletchley Park. So Alan Turing joined Bletchley Park pretty much at the start of the war, he was recruited from Cambridge University. He'd been on a list of likely people that they were thinking would be helpful to call up if war broke out. And he was set to work on Enigma with many, many other co-breakers. The Enigma unit at the start of the war was led by Dilly Knox, who had been working on Enigma for some time, particularly in the Spanish Civil War. We have a machine on display here that is a Spanish Civil War Enigma machine. So there was some knowledge of the Enigma cipher already, but also the really key part of knowledge transfer came from the Polish, who just before Poland was invaded, called a conference in Piri in Poland, invited the British and the French code breakers to that and shared what they knew because they had also been working on Enigma for many decades. Enigma was initially invented in the 1920s as a commercial machine because it had this potential to be military, strategically important. Code breakers in various places had been already working on it and looking at it and, and trying to understand what lay behind the encryption. And so 
the British were were fortunate to receive, you know, a lot of existing knowledge that coupled with their knowledge and the new ideas coming in from everyone that they put into bear on the problem allowed them to get a real head start. And I think it's probably important to say that there was no one enigma machine. There were many, many models. And it was a little bit of an arms race, you know. The machine itself started to get got increasingly more complex, techniques became obsolete, and you had to think of something completely different. That's about the bomb machine. I think this was an early type of computer invented by Alan Turing and his team. What was the function of this? Essentially allow you to crunch through many, 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 many different combinations of potential encryptions to find one that would match. Um, So it was a massive breakthrough in the decryption of Enigma. It allowed them to potentially find a key in as little as 12 minutes, whereas doing it by hand could have taken several days. And the first bomb was produced in 1940. Again, drawing on all the knowledge at Bletchley and the knowledge shared by the Polish, Turing was able to come up with the idea of an electromechanical machine to help speed up the process. And it took a bit of time to get the prototype perfected, but by the end of 1940, quite a lot of bombs were already in operation and the numbers just increased through the through the war. It just gave the codebreakers the potential to read so many more Enigma messages. And they were vitally important because they were carrying the on-the-ground operational information from German units. Each German unit in the field would have had an Enigma machine with them, and it was how they transmitted all of their communications. So it was that vital on-the-ground operational information that could come from Enigma. They were hearing it on the airways between the front line and Berlin, for example. Precisely, yes, exactly. These were the sort of the orders and the status reports from all of the units engaged in combat or um, being moved to different locations. And all of that information could help build up a picture of the German strategy and German operational movement. So when did they actually break the code? So the first breaks in the Nicola at Bletchley Park were in early 1940, late 1939, but they were breaking it by hand. So by the time they got into the messages, they were a little bit out of date. Doesn't mean they were useless because obviously that, all that information gives you a really good picture of what was happening. But when the bomb machines came in, because they speeded up that process so quickly, we've got examples of, for example, on um, D-Day, on the day of the, of the invasion itself, we were getting from intercepted message to completely translated plain text English message in as little as three hours. It's amazing. And that certainly changed the war. Uh, it had a huge impact on the war. Just the amount of information that could be then passed as intelligence out to Allied commands and give them an insight. I should just explain that the bomb machine we're standing beside has just come to life. Yes, we can see the rotors turning and kicking away and uh, yes, it makes this wonderful thunking noise. Would messages come through from resistance and, and other people, British, working in Germany, places like that? Um, so Bletchley was only concerned with messages sent by the enemy. They were a partner organisation to the other intelligence services um, who would have been dealing with messages from agents in the field, uh, British agents in the field. But they were absolutely sharing information, again, particularly on, with D-Day. All of the intelligence that helped inform the invasion tactics came not just from Bletchley, but from a whole range of other sources, including agents in the field, from the Americans, from aerial reconnaissance, from every every potential source. And that was all digested here into the intelligence that was needed to help plan. And then we work closely with the Americans, presumably. Very, very much so. We call Bletchley Park the birthplace of the special relationship because that began as an intelligence sharing relationship and the initial agreements were signed here in the mansion. You also mentioned Poland was involved somehow. Poland was really key to Bletchley Park's knowledge of Enigma. They weren't starting from scratch here. They were building on knowledge from their own efforts with Enigma pre-war and from a large amount of knowledge that the Polish shared just before they were invaded by Germany. They handed over everything they knew incredibly generously. The old royal typewriter and the 
telephones, it, it, it actually is rather a long way from computers. It's very far from a modern office, isn't it? Um, and we have got a set of very few photographs of the mansion in its earliest days. So who do you think would enjoy coming here for the day? Well, I think almost anyone. I think some of the school children we saw going around are too young to appreciate it, but the ones who were 12 and upwards were fascinating, clearly fascinating, because this is, after all, really the birthplace of modern computing. And radio, television, there are different exhibits, but large. I mean, each one is a mini-museum in its own right. So there's information about television, radio, how they started, computers, and then there's a whole section on the future and how... Everything here has influenced. And you can walk around, I mean, literally dozens, perhaps scores of rooms, which have been done up in the style of the 1940s with old typewriters and overcoats hanging on pegs. You say the word overcoat wisely. Well, that's, that's what they were, overcoats hanging on pegs. So one went remarkably Harris Tweed written all over it. And then there's umbrellas, there's, there's a bike rack outside full of 1940s bikes. Crocodile handbags. Oh, I didn't see that. I saw one. And what else was there? Notices everywhere warning you to uh, keep your mouth shut, to not discuss what went on here. And perhaps that's the most remarkable thing of all, was that the German Abwehr, biggest failure of intelligence, they never discovered Bletchley Park or what went on here. You really do need a whole day. And there's a station within walking distance, so it's quite convenient. If you want to know more about Bletchley Park and the Intelligence Factory exhibition, go to bletchleypark.org. For further travel information on where to stay, shop and eat, either before or after your visit, go to experienceoxfordshire.org. That's all for now. If you've enjoyed the show, please visit our website, actionpacktravel.com, or you can subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or any of the many podcast platforms. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. We'd love you to sign up for our regular emails too at peter at actionpacktravel.com. Until next week, stay safe. And I am you. You are me. It's just a crazy storm.